0: If you have a Bible with you, turn to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. I'm going to show verses on the screen here in a minute as well. Romans chapter 12. See, we believe, biblically, that one of the most strategic things we can do is seek to build a strong, loving community together. We believe that's vital, that we might glorify God and pursue our mission as a body of believers in Jesus. We want to build a strong, loving community together. And that kind of vision for community is like live streaming. Live streaming out of Romans chapter 12. Look at it with me, please. Follow along as I read verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, the Apostle Paul writes, and sisters, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, if you're concerned that we're going to cover all that in detail, we're not. (laughs) But may God use his word to our lives right now. A commencement speech was given this past June by Supreme Court Justice Roberts at an elite middle school for boys in New Hampshire from which his son was graduating. But this commencement speech was rather unique. Here's an excerpt of Chief Roberts' statement. He said now, quote, the commencement speakers will typically wish you good luck and extend good wishes to you. I will not do that. And I'll tell you why. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you'll be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. And sorry to say, he said, sorry to say, but I hope you'll be lonely from time to time so that you do not take friends for granted. Now, I don't wish anyone to be lonely here. In fact, I'm preaching that we would not be lonely here. I don't wish for you to be lonely here, but but he does capture there what we're seeking to talk about, that we would not take biblical friendship for granted that we would not take biblical fellowship and the privilege of biblical community, being together as one another in Christ, we would not take that, friends, for granted. I just want to ask you from the outset, have you taken that for granted? Do you think you have, maybe? Have you? And it's easy to do, isn't it? Have you taken relationship together in Christ a little bit for granted have you at all taken the the privilege of fellowship together participating together in Christ have have you kind of taken that for granted at all see this passage can be for us kind of like it's kind of like the dipstick when you check your oil in your car you know how you do that you check the dipstick oh I'm a quart low ever do that Once in a while. This is like a dipstick into our hearts for fellowship. And we can see, are we a court low? Have we taken fellowship and community for granted at all? Think of it that way. Because what I want to glean from you is the following. I want to see with you that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus creates and calls us to be a community of service and and love. Do, do you have this slide here? Sarah? Let me hit that for me. Yeah, that's it right there. The gospel. The good news of Jesus. Here's what we want to see together, friends. It creates and, and it calls us to be, it puts a claim on us, creates a community of service and love. Let's see both those things together one at a time. First, first, the gospel, this good news, creates a community of Service verse 1 look at verse 1 with me the apostle writes i appeal to you therefore therefore brothers and you could say brothers and sisters all included by the mercies of god now stop there because when you see a therefore you should ask what's it therefore what is it therefore therefore and the therefore is there because he's pulling on the mercies of god for 11 chapters like Starting off in chapter 1, where he tells us that all of us have suppressed the truth of God available to us in creation. We've pushed it down. We've shoved it out of our consciences. We've said, oh, I'm not even sure God is real. Chapter 2, there's more of the same. Chapter 3, he tells us this is serious. In fact, he sums up charges like, like a judge in his courtroom. He says, quote, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. If, you, if you're here thinking, I'm a, I'm a seeker, God's saying, left to yourself, you don't, you don't seek God. Not left to yourself. He said, all have turned aside. Not most, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, he says, not even one. The situation, friends, left to ourselves, is utterly hopeless, but then chapter 3 goes on to say, God has intervened wonderfully in that hopeless situation, hasn't he? We sang about this. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, obeying as we never could. And then he died on a Roman cross to bear the justice of God in our place. As, as Claire alluded to, the justice of God is borne by the God-man in our stead so that God could be just, While it says, justifying us, declaring us, catch this, declaring us righteous. in, In the courtroom, they might say, we rule you're not guilty. That's not what God does. He goes beyond that. He says, I declare you, the believer in Jesus, I declare, declare that you are righteous with the righteousness of my Son. I impute to you, I credit to you, the perfect obedience of the God-man. I see you now as in perfect standing before me, blameless before me because of Him. Isn't that amazing? But that's not all. Romans goes on to say, in Christ then He adopts you as His child. He takes you from... The courtroom, over to the living room and he puts his arms around you and he says you are my child forever I want you to know my love forever I am your father you are my child this is the gospel this is the good news and if you're here this morning and you've not yet believed that good news I just want to pause and say thanks for being here look thanks for coming You're in the right place. In case you've been wondering, like in this whole service, have I wandered into some weird twilight zone? Am I in the wrong place? No, you're in the right place. Because God wants you to know Him and enjoy Him. He has sent His Son to live, die, and rise so that you could be forgiven of your sins and have a relationship with Him, being adopted as His child. And I just want to urge you, as I'm talking the rest of this time, that you would turn to Christ and trust in what He's done for you. Rely on His life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God. This is the good news, friends. This is the gospel. So, Romans 12, verse 1 is the hinge of the whole book. Do you see that? It's the hinge. The therefore is saying... The mercies of God, for 11 chapters, is to have an intended effect on our lives. Look at it again, verse 1. Therefore, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's strange. Usually sacrifices die. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, now, in light of that good news, the entirety of your life becomes about worship. Isn't that great? But don't make the mistake of trying to do that alone. Look at verse 4. For as in one body, a body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. It's interesting, he quickly goes to community, doesn't he? But catch this stunning fact here. He says, you're you're part of a body. It's a very, very powerful metaphor for the Church of Jesus Christ. A body. And when verse 5 says we're one body in Christ, that can't only refer to the worldwide body of Christ. I, I think it certainly involves that, to be sure. But but you can't live this out, as we'll see. You can't live this out only as a member of the worldwide body of Christ. You are going to need to live this out, you're going to need local bodies. Local churches in which to do so. So, we should ask, what are we to do in this local body where we have real relationship with real people in real community? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? He says you have different functions, different roles to play. For instance, verse 6, having gifts... Gifts of grace that differ according to the grace given to us. He says, let us use these gifts of grace. Use them, he says. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, the apostle is not giving us an exhaustive list of gifts. He's saying, do your function. <laughs> Be the part God has made you to play. He's saying in this body, we need every part playing its part. It's, it's like your physical body, isn't it? That's the power of this metaphor. It's like your physical body. You need your arm doing its arm thing, right? For instance, picking up a fork. <laughs> One of my favorite things for my arm to do. In the hand, pick up a fork. And you put food in your mouth, and then you need your mouth doing the mouth thing, Like right? You need your mouth chewing. And then you need that food to go into your stomach to be digested. You don't ask your arm to digest. You, you say stomach. Now, do your stomach thing, and your stomach digests. And then your, your pancreas does the pancreatic thing, and the, the kidney does the kidney thing. And, and you get the idea. You need with your physical body every part playing its part. God is saying, that's what I need to happen in my church. I want, I've designed every part to play a part. In other words, you have a role, friends. You have a role that is vital. Vital even to this body. I think the implication is This life of worship, this life of worship involves real service being used by God to other people. Think about, think about what President John F. Kennedy said famously. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what? You know it. But what you can do for your country. You know that, that's a, pretty biblical idea. You ever think about it? Ever think about that? That... Jesus said in Mark 10, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. So he uniquely serves. And then in John 13, he washed the disciples' feet and he said, you're blessed if you follow my example of servanthood. Coming not to be served, but to serve. Apply that to this community apply that to your small group. It's easy to think, isn't it? And not entirely wrong. To think, what can my small group do for me? <laughs> and I'm not saying that's wrong, okay? I want you to benefit from your small group. Don't, please don't mishear what I'm saying. But it's easy to go, what can my small group do for me? I do think the text is saying, ask not what your small group can do for you primarily. Ask what you can do for your small group. God wants to use you in service in this community. What does that look like? Well, Dave highlighted last week from Ephesians 4 speaking the truth in love. That's a big part of home group life. Going and encouraging someone with the good news of Jesus. Reminding them of what the Savior has done for them. Helping them to live in light of what Christ has purchased for them. That's ministry. That's service. Could also be praying for someone. That's huge. Could be serving them in practical ways. That is... So vital, friends. There's a lot of formal ministry that happens in this church like through our ministry teams. And we need help. There's a little blurb for the children's ministry. That's a wonderful formal ministry that you can find in your bulletin. We need that. But a lot of ministry, by God's design, happens in the church, let's call it informally. Informally. In the context of relationships. As people are caring for each other. Parts are doing their part. I think about the Reed family, and hope they don't mind me mentioning this, but Nazarene gets diagnosed with cancer. She goes to the picnic, the church picnic at Mission Beach. And I just loved how. Craig is swamped by people. Nazarene is swamped by people. Just people around them, drawing them out, caring for them, praying for them. Friends, thank you. That's ministry. Next Sunday I come. I see a a group of ladies gather around Nazarene right here. How how are you doing? How can we encourage you? How can I pray for you? It's so wonderful. I I ask my my dear wife to send out an email about meals for the reeds. She said, well, uh," I probably asked her 15 minutes later. Well, they're all booked up except one. It, it, It was literally, I think it was minutes. And he said, I'm on that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is what's being described here. I want to ask you friends, how are we going to do that together in an ongoing way? Where, where will you build those kinds of relationships, those interconnections, so that you're aware of needs and can meet them in ways? How are you going to do that? Don't, don't you need a smaller context than this to do that? Don't we need a smaller context so we can be connected together and be aware of where we're... Struggling and rejoicing, where there's needs where we can pray for each other and come alongside each other. Then we, we need a smaller group so that we can say, out of my life of worship to Jesus, I want to be my part in this body. You're vital. You're vital, friends. Your small group is where you can live these things out in an ongoing way. This good news of Jesus, it creates and calls us to be a community of service. But that's not really what all the apostle says here. He goes on to say secondly, this gospel, this good news creates a community of love. This good news also creates a community of love. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine. And, and, and the apostle literally says here simply, sincere love. Sincere love. It, it's almost like this is a heading for a new section. Life of worship, in light of the gospel, life of worship, okay, service. Now, new heading, sincere love, genuine love. And then it's kind of rapid fire, Of all kinds of things that seem to loosely relate to this theme of sincere, genuine love. I think you could think of it as snapshots. Variety of ways you see sincere or genuine love. Look at at what he goes on to say next. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So there's a moral element in sincere love. And then he says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. I just want to drop into that verse, verse 10. I want to tease that out with you. You could more literally translate that. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be, be devoted, be committed to each other in brotherly love. Be devoted to Philadelphia, like the city, right? In Pennsylvania, the city of What? Brotherly love. Don't say eagles. I don't say the flyers. It's the city of brotherly love. That's the word. Be devoted, be committed to Philadelphia. Brotherly love. In other words, Jesus died to bring us into God's family. And there's a vertical element of that, which is primarily Primary, reconciled to God, adopted as his child. And then there's kind of a horizontal element. We are together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So he says, be devoted to brotherly, sisterly love. In other words, he's saying, you get to reflect the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the love between them, the love you've experienced from them, you get to reflect that love to each other. It's a very profound thing. Think about it. Think of what Jesus says in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you have love for one another. All people will know that you're part of my family as you love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When you go to one of my favorite establishments called Starbucks, how do you know who the employees are? They have a green apron. Ever notice that? They're all wearing a green apron, unless they're a coffee master. They've got the black apron on, right? And they can tell you more about coffee, I guess. But I always get the dark roast, so it's pretty easy. Green apron, you recognize. Employee, if, if you're playing on a sports team or your child is playing on a sports team, who do you know is on your child's sports team? I have the same jersey. My son Stephen, he had a soccer team last year where their jerseys were bright, fluorescent yellow. They called their their team name Caution. I thought that was great. Caution. But you could find, you could recognize their teammates. Bright, yellow, fluorescent jersey on. Jesus said, this is how you recognize my people. With love for each other. It's not an apron, it's not a jersey. It's how they relate to each other. I, I think, you know... I brought my study Bible, a big old honkin' study Bible. I love this study Bible. Binding's breaking, I think. You'd think he would say, "You recognize my people when they're carrying a big old honkin' study Bible, and <laughs> you can find a Christian. You know they are my disciples when they have a big, big Bible with artificial leather on top." That's, you know, you recognize my followers. They got the big Bible. I'm all for big Bibles. You know that. It's not what he says. He says, the apron I put on them is love for each other. What's the implication of this verse? The implication is it's hard to love each other sometimes. I mean, if we did this always, perfectly, all the time, I don't think God would find a need for verse 10 to be in our Bibles. And if we perfectly loved brotherly, sisterly love all the time, 24-7, God would not need to remind us of verse 10. But he says, no, Apostle Paul, you better put it in. Be devoted to brotherly love because why? We're a family, but let's be frank. We can be a dysfunctional family with the best of them sometimes. I read a book recently, one of those five views books. This was Five Views of Christianity and Psychology. It's edited by Eric Johnson. And that's, that's kind of a controversial topic in the church. People debate about that. And this book is, is five people arguing with each other. <laughs> this book is five Christians arguing with each other in print. But at the end, the editor said something I thought was quite profound. He said, quote, Individualism is a great strength and great weakness of evangelicalism. Individualism is a great strength and a great weakness of people who believe God's word. He says it's a great strength, individualism is a great strength because we accent following Jesus personally. We accent taking up your own cross individually and following Jesus Christ. Individualism is a great strength. But then he said it has a dark side. He said the dark side of individualism in the church is how we can splinter among ourselves. Isn't that true? So that was quite profound. We accent individualism, rightfully so, rightfully so, but it has a dark side. We can kind of splinter. Isn't that true? I thought about how it's easy to splinter into some kinds of in-groups and and some kind of out-group. So like, for instance, for us, most of the adults are, are married, and so... If you're married, you could say, well, you're in the in-group in Grace Church. Grace Church is really for those who are married. You're in the in-group. But how does that make our single adults feel? What do you think, married couples? Makes them feel like they're in the out-group, doesn't it? it? Makes them feel like they're on the outside looking in. Or maybe if you're older, maybe you're above retirement age. I know you can feel like you're part of the out-group because majority of people are younger than retirement age. And so we can think, I'm 49, we can think you're you're in the in-group. And for us who are under retirement age, we should be aware of that, shouldn't we? It can happen for preference issues can happen for educational means. Public school, private school, home groups, uh, homeschool. We can get kind of in-groups and out-groups that way. I think teenagers, this can happen for you, can't it? Happens for adults, too. For teenagers, it's very easy to kind of form an in-group and then there's an out-group. Are you aware of that? If you have a group of friends that you know really, really well, and you hang out with all the, all the, all the time. Is that a bad thing? No, not a bad thing. But if you are not reaching out to others, what's happened? You formed an in-group, and there's a bunch in the out-group. You see what I'm saying, friends? You see how though we're a family, we can splinter in ways we don't mean. We're not aware of, but we need to apply this verse, verse 10, and say, what's it look like for me if I'm on one of those in-groups to show brotherly love to someone who's different? Because we're part of the same family. And what does it look like for me if I feel like I'm on the out-group to look like for me to show brotherly love to others who are different from me? Because the verse applies to all of us, right? Doesn't it? It's not just those who feel in and those who feel out. The verse applies to all of us to say, in your situation, be devoted to, committed to, brotherly, sisterly, Love, And then the apostle seems to give us a few snapshots. Look at verse verse 10, just real quick. Verse 10, second part. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. So brotherly love has this competition to honor each other more. I love that. Someone encourages you, honors you. You say, I ain't standing for that. (laughs) I'm going to honor you back. You encourage me, I'm going to encourage you more. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 12, rejoice in hope patient in in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Certainly individual application. I think there's application to life together. Genuine love walks together through the real stuff of life. Verse 13. This is corporate. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Genuine love, brotherly love gets seen. It gets shown in real practical ways. Might be financial help. Might be opening your home. This is brotherly love in action. I just want to ask you, friend, do you see your need for a small group to do those things? Let's get practical. It's it's easy. It's easy to say that we love each other if we are rather anonymous from each other. It's really easy to say, I love people. I just don't talk with them. It's a hypothetical love. I mean, in theory, I love them, but I don't really relate to them. But if you're in a small group, you don't have that luxury very much because then you're together and hopefully you're doing life together and you're talking about the scriptures and you're talking about how that applies to your lives and you're having some, some context to build relationship together and then someone gets on your nerves. Someone annoys you. And then comes the test of love. (laughs) Oh, yes. Then we ask, am I still devoted to brotherly love? Don't we need small groups to walk this out, friends? Places where you're joined with people in real relationship to honor each other, to outdo one another in showing honor, to rejoice together in life, to pray together when things are hard, to, to maybe meet a financial need to open your home to each other don't we need smaller contexts friends this context is not going to work if we want to truly be known by others and know them ourselves it's just not going to work here don't we need smaller contexts where we can be in practical ways real ways a community of love i'm going to i'm going to stop babbling on i promise But we took the title of this series from the classic little book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Life Together. This is my copy. I got this at an estate sale, though it's falling apart. Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis in 1945, about two months before World War II in Europe ended. Two months before it ended. He was martyred because of his part in the assassination plot to kill Adolf Hitler a great theologian, shining star in the church in Germany. Not long before he was arrested, he wrote this little classic book. And on page one of chapter one, very first page, he says this. We have this quote. He said, it is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege Of living among other Christians. Doesn't that sound like Chief Justice Roberts to the middle school boys? He said, I hope you'll be lonely once in a while, so you won't take friends for granted. Bonhoeffer says, it's just friends not to be taken for granted, that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians, he goes on to say a little bit later on the next page, he says, not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in unbelieving lands stand alone. They know, notice this last sentence. They know that visible fellowship is a blessing. I just pray you feel that this morning and you leave that Today in your heart. Our fellowship is not to be taken for granted, friends. It is a great, great blessing. We get to enjoy, don't we? What the God man lived, died, and rose to make possible people who are reconciled to God first and foremost adopted by the living God made his beloved children and joined together in a body the body of Christ where they live that out in local bodies like this one what we want to do as we close taking the Lord's Supper this morning is take it a little bit differently